Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. If you'd open up a Bible to Luke, the 13th chapter, Luke chapter 13, we're going to read several verses right there at the top of the page on Luke, the 13th chapter. And as you're finding Luke chapter 13, let me join in the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this fine Lord's Day morning, rainy Lord's Day morning, but it is a fine day nonetheless because we have health and we have opportunity to be in the presence of God, to be with our brothers and our sisters as we worship God, seek to do the things that please Him and bring honor to Him. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be back. Had a good week and I bring you greetings from the good brothers and sisters down in Paris, Tennessee. We had a good week last week and, uh, but I'll tell you, I just, no place like home. Just love being here at Lakeside and I'm glad to get to be here. I appreciate, uh, Brother Luke and Brother Brian preaching, uh, last Sunday. I want to thank as well Brother Paul for doing the talk at the nursing home, Brother Cody for doing the Bible drill, Brother Seth and Brother Robbie for doing my Bible classes. That's pretty impressive. Call on six different guys to fill in in those areas. And I could have called on six other guys and probably another six guys after that. We're just tremendously blessed here at Lakeside in that regard and appreciate each and every one of you. Let's see how well my voice will do this morning. I've spent a whole week shouting and yelling at people from the pulpit and singing my guts out all week long. And so we'll see if we can't trudge through uh, this morning. In Luke chapter 13, read with me. Let's begin in verse number 1. In Luke 13 and in verse 1, there were some present, Luke 13 verse 1, at that very time, who told him, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If I were to ask you what is the most difficult command in all of Scripture, how would you answer What in your estimation is the hardest command that God gives for people to abide by? I think some of us, maybe as we start to think about that, maybe we would think about the command to forgive. To forgive those who trespass against us, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. That's often very, very hard to do, especially if we've been wronged in in a very hurtful sort of way. Or maybe some of us would think about that stuff that the Bible says about loving our enemies, Matthew 5, 44. Boy, now... There's a command that's an awful lot easier said than it is done. Or maybe as we think about some of our our personal circumstances and our personal backgrounds, some commands might be hard for one person than they might be for another. For example, the person who has struggles with alcohol addiction and drinking alcohol, they might have a really, really tough time with what the Bible says about abstaining from drunkenness, Galatians chapter 5 and other places. They may have a harder time with that than someone like me would. I've never drank alcohol, don't have any desire to drink alcohol. However, if anybody ever finds the verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not drink Mountain Dew, I'm probably going to be in some real trouble there. I'd have some real difficulty with that command. But I do think that in all seriousness, if we had to pick out the most universally challenging command in the entire Bible, I think we'd have to say, that it's the command that Jesus gives in Luke the 13th chapter. The command that He gives in verse 3, and then repeats it again in verse 5. 
It is the command that Jesus utters no less than a dozen times in the Gospel of Luke alone. It is a command that is echoed more than 50 times throughout the remainder of the New Testament. It is the command that John the Baptist preached while he was in the wilderness. It is the command that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And it is the command that Paul preached when he stood atop Mars Hill. It is the command to repent. Everywhere we turn, the Bible is telling us that we must repent. And I am submitting to you this morning, if we're just being totally honest, repentance, it's tough. It is hard to repent. And as a result of it being such a hard command, many times we just don't want to do it. You know, it's a whole lot easier for us to just ignore all those passages that talk about repentance. Or maybe we'll just kind of skip over, gloss over that stuff. Or maybe we'll make a bunch of lame excuses as to why that doesn't necessarily apply to me. But when it's all said and done, whether we like it or not, Jesus' instructions are plain and clear. Repent or perish. Man, that's tough. Repentance, the tough one. It is tough to repent. It is tough to repent, first of all, when we don't even know what repentance is. If that is the case this morning, I want to correct that. It is tough to repent when we don't even know how to repent. And if that is the case this morning, I want to also correct that. This morning, I want to help all of us to be able to better tackle the toughest command in Scripture. And my hope this morning, by the time that we're done, is that not only will all of us have a better understanding about what repentance is, but even more so, we will all have a greater eagerness and readiness to repent in our own lives. Are you ready for that? Let's just start that by doing maybe a little bit of defining. Let's just talk about what repentance is. You know, the word repent, it is a thoroughly religious term. We don't hear the word repent being used outside of religious context very often. Sometimes, though, people have a lot of misunderstandings about what the Bible is really getting at when it talks about repentance. Look at me in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this is a helpful passage because Paul shows us that there is a difference in man's definition of repentance and God's definition. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm reading here in verses 9 and 10. In 2 Corinthians 7 and in verse 9, Paul says, As it is... I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10 now. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What I want you to see from this passage is that repentance It is a whole lot more than just feeling sorry. There is more to repentance than just the emotional response. Yet how many people today, whenever they do something that they know is wrong, and then they feel bad about what they've done, well, they're pretty sure that that means that they've repented. I did a bad thing. I felt bad about it, so I guess that means that I've repented. No, that's that's actually not repentance. Now, let me say, emotions are important. Emotions are God-given. They certainly do play a role in our repentance. Paul says that they can lead to repentance. But emotions in and of themselves, they are not the same thing as actually repenting. And I think we know that to be true, don't we? 
How many times have we seen maybe a celebrity get involved in some kind of scandalous, terrible behavior? And what's the very first thing that they do once they're found out, once they're caught? Well, what they do is they, their publicists will issue a big press release to all of the major news outlets. And they say they have such terrible regret for the things that they've done. And then those people, they start making the talk show circuit and they go around on TV and in all these places and talk about how bad they feel for what they've done. And they get all emotional about that. But then, of course, a few weeks go by, a few months go by. They go back to their fame and their fortune and making movies and all of that stuff. And what's the very next thing that happens? Yeah, they're right back involved in that very same sin. Well, what's going on there? Well, what's going on there is they didn't change. Change. Change is the key word this morning. And I want to submit to you that change is the key to repentance. Let's just, let's just let the Bible make this point. It's a great time to just let the Bible just do some defining here. Let's start in the book of Isaiah. Start in Isaiah 55. And we're just going to kind of work our way forward. Stack some passages on top of one another. In Isaiah 55, read with me here beginning in verse 6. In Isaiah 55 and in verse 6, the prophet here speaking for the Lord, he says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Look at the language there. That's the language of change. You need to change your ways. You need to change your thoughts. You need to return to the Lord. Look in the New Testament now in Matthew 3. In Matthew chapter 3, here's the teaching of John the Baptist. This is the guy who was out in the wilderness and he was preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at what he says, though, about that repentance business. In Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 8, John says, Matthew 3 and verse 8, he says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John says that real repentance, it bears fruit. That is, there's some evidence of a change that has taken place. You can see that they've made a change. How about in the book of Matthew again, in Matthew chapter 12? In Matthew 12, this is Jesus now, and He's talking to the scribes and to the Pharisees, and He wants to reach back into the Old Testament for an illustration to say something about repentance. In Matthew 12, look in verse 41. He's talking here about Jonah, and He says, the people that Jonah went to speak to, the men of Nineveh, He says, the men of Nineveh, they will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. When Jonah very reluctantly went and told that message that God's going to destroy you, Ninevites, what did they do in response to that? They repented. They got it turned around. They made a change. But in the book of Acts now, in Acts chapter 3, in Acts 3, Peter has the opportunity to preach here on Solomon's porch. In Acts chapter 3, look at what Peter says to his audience there. In Acts 3 and in verse 19, Peter says, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Turn again. Turn back. Turn around. When I do the Bible drill with the kids and I'm trying to reinforce the idea of repentance, the illustration I always use is the sign, the U-turn sign. It's making that turnaround in the road. We're going in this direction, going in the wrong direction. Got to get it turned around. How about 
But in the book of First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians, in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, Paul talks here about some folks who had not repented; they had not changed. In Second Corinthians chapter twelve, this is verse twenty-one. Second Corinthians twelve, verse twenty-one. Paul says, "For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish." That perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come and see you guys, I'm going to see that you guys haven't changed. That you have not repented. You're still practicing those old wicked deeds. How about one final verse in this connection in the book of Revelation? In Revelation chapter 2, the Lord sends all these letters to these seven churches throughout Asia. And in the letter that the Lord sends to the church at Ephesus, he says this, in Revelation 2 and in verse 5, he says to them there, Revelation 2 and verse 5, he says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There is no doubt, there can be no doubt. This is just a sampling But after looking at passages like these, there is no doubt that repentance must involve a change, a turnaround. Crying about what you've done, that's not repentance. Being sorry, maybe being sorry that you got caught doing a bad thing, that's not repentance. Let me even just add here as well, that suddenly doing better, that's not even necessarily repentance. Repentance is... It is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I need to say that again. In fact, that's where the whole rest of the lesson is going. It is a change of mind, a change of our thinking that then leads to a change of life, a change in our actions. Think about this. A person may stop sinning because the doctor tells them that if they don't stop doing that, they're going to die. Well, they may make some changes outwardly, but you know what? That's not necessarily the change of mind that God is looking for. A person might stop sinning because their spouse says, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to leave you. Well, they may stop doing the bad thing, but again, that's not necessarily the change of mind that the Bible is calling for. Granted, there are a variety of emotional responses. There's even a variety of different reasons as that might cause a person to change their outward behavior and to stop doing wrong things. But I want to say again, that in and of itself is not God-pleasing repentance. Repentance is when we change our mind. We start to think differently about God. We think differently about sin. We think differently about ourselves and our relationship to God and our relationship to sin. And that change in our mind and our thinking, that is what then leads to the change in life. And I'm saying this morning, that's exactly why repentance is so tough. Because it involves changing the mind. Anytime we have to work with our minds, that is always more difficult than just doing something outwardly with our bodies. Isn't that true? I always think the classic example of this is when we talk about the Lord's Supper. Is it hard to do the physical act of partaking the Lord's Supper? Breaking off a piece of that? Sometimes it's hard to break off that piece of cracker. Is it hard to do that though? Is it hard to drink that little cup of grape juice and do the physical act of partaking of the supper? Is that hard to do? No, that's, that's a piece of cake. Do that, you know, pretty quickly. We can do that. That's easy. 
The hard part though is with our mind. Staying focused on the cross. Thinking about Jesus. Being reminded of why He came and suffered and died. Training our minds in the direction that it ought to go. That's the challenge. And so it is with repentance. That change of mind, that's what makes repenting so difficult. I remember talking with a fellow one time. He's actually a good friend. Who had lived a very, very immoral life. And I mean just everything. Drugs, alcohol, fornication, partying, the whole nine yards. But after years and years of of riotous, prodigal living, he decided to become a Christian. Decided to realize, you know what, that's a dead end. Don't want to do that anymore. I need to become a Christian. Or so it seemed. I say so it seemed because I can remember in the months and years that followed, I can remember talking to him about his past. And I remember how he would talk about He would talk about how much he missed the things that he used to do. He would recount with joy his various sinful escapades and the people that he did things with and the things that they did. He would speak fondly of all the good times that he used to have running around, living it up in sin. As you can probably guess, ultimately the facade of his Christianity, it crumbled and it fell upon him. He ended up returning back to sin. He went back to the world. Why? Because even though for a while he outwardly changed his actions, he changed what he was doing, the problem was he had never changed his mind about sin. He still loved sin. And so he returned to what he truly loved. So maybe you're thinking right now, Josh, I worry that maybe I still love my sin. Maybe I've got something in my life that I'm struggling with, trying to defeat and overcome, and I'm worried that maybe I don't think about that sin in the way that I ought to. How can I change my mind? That is so hard to do. How can I do that better? And that's exactly where I'm steering this ship for these last few moments. Let me just put together some ideas that will help us to change our mind, because that's fundamentally what has to happen. You know, all too often people want to act like their mind... My mind's just already set. It's just the way that I've thought for so long. This is just the things that I've done for so long. So I'm just just kind of stuck right here. There's no changing it. But you know what? Even though that might be a difficult thing to do, it can be done. Think about it in the Bible. In Acts 2, there were 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost who were baptized. And those were the very same people who just a few weeks before had crucified Jesus. Those people changed their minds, didn't they? Or what about that guy that we know as the Apostle Paul? Once upon a time, he was known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He hated the church. He persecuted Christians, did all kinds of evil and horrible things. That guy changed his mind, didn't he? Changed, did a complete 180 degree turnaround. And the same can be true for us. That whatever you believe, Whatever you think about your sin, you can change your mind about it if you really want to. With the help of God, you can change your mind. And as a result, when you change your mind, you can change your life. That would then actually constitute repentance, wouldn't it? First of all, let me just say that anyone can change their mind if they change from this thinking of, I can get away with this, I can do this bad thing and I can get away with it. We need to change from thinking that way to thinking, you know what? God sees and God knows every single thing that I'm doing. You know, too often I'm afraid that we evaluate sin in terms of 
whether or not I can get away with it. Of course, that'll never, ever work. Look in the book of Genesis with me, in Genesis 27. In Genesis 27, there's some wrongdoing, some scheming that's going on here. Rebecca is orchestrating some deception, and she wants her favorite son, Jacob, to be involved in that. I want you to notice what Jacob's reply is to this sinful act that's being concocted. In Genesis chapter 27, look in verse 11. Jacob says, in Genesis 27 and in verse 11, Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. What's Jacob talking about here? You know this story well. What's Jacob talking about here? What's Jacob's approach here? Jacob's approach here is, Mom, I'm afraid I'm going to get caught. His approach is not, you know, Mom, that's not right. That's sinful. That's lying. That's deception. That's not what Jacob says. Jacob says, I'm afraid that I'm going to get caught, that I'm going to get found out by my dad. And all too often, I am afraid that that is how we approach sin. Especially when you're young. Young people, pay attention here. We're always thinking in those terms, is anybody going to find out? Is Mom and Dad going to find out about this? Is people at church going to find out about what I'm doing? Is there a way that maybe I can do this without word getting out to anybody and I can kind of keep this a secret? You know, isn't that exactly why pornography is so popular and so widespread these days? You know, once upon a time, if you wanted to view pornographic material, you had to travel to the to the seedy part of town. And you had to risk getting caught going into that store or that movie theater. Not anymore. Don't worry about that anymore. All the risk has been eliminated. You can look at all the pornographic material you want from the comforts of your home with just the click of a button. Or even with smartphones now with just the, you know, the press of a button. It's so easy. Nobody will ever have to find out what you're doing. You know what? The same exact thing could be said for, for any number of sinful behaviors that people involve themselves in. Because as long as you think that you can get away with it, if there's even the chance that you can get away with it, why would you ever stop doing it? Do you see now? Do you see why it's so important that we change our view, our mind, our perspective? That's why we need to get rid of this thinking that, you know, I can get away with this. We need to trash that mindset. And we need to replace it with the understanding that God sees, God knows everything. God knows exactly what I'm doing, even even if nobody else does. Even if mom and dad doesn't know, God knows. Which means... Which means I'm actually not getting away with it. I think I'm getting away with it because I didn't get in trouble for it, but I'm not getting away with it. The Lord knows. If you're still in the Old Testament, jump over to the book of Numbers. In Numbers 32, as Moses is talking with the Israelites here, he actually gives them this very incentive for doing what was right. In fact, this was a verse that my mom would often quote to me whenever I was leaving the house and fixing to go out with my friends or fixing to go out and do stuff with other people. Numbers 32, look at verse 23. Numbers 32, 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. Notice this. And be sure your sin will find you out. How many of us have had to learn about that verse the hard way? Moses says, don't even try. Don't even try to get away with this because you will utterly and absolutely fail. Look in the book of Psalms, please, in Psalm 139. 
Psalm 139, as we've been reading in the wisdom literature this year, maybe you've been making notes in your Bible of particular passages that are important and helpful for you. Here's a good one. We might ought to just mark in our Bible and just come back to the next time we're tempted to sin and we start telling ourselves, oh, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to find out about this. Well, Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. Excuse me. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Drop down to verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed down in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. I kind of just do this under the cloak of darkness. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I believe what we need to do is we need to be meditating more on the truth of God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, that God knows everything, God sees everything, and that we cannot get away with anything. There's that old hymn, I'm not sure if it's still in these songbooks, but it's that song, There's an all-seeing eye watching you. I've mentioned before how when I was a kid, that song really creeped me out. The idea of just a big cosmic eyeball in the sky just following me everywhere that I went. But you know what? That expresses a good thought. That it is absolutely impossible to get away with anything in the eyes of God. You know, think about it. You can fool all kinds of people. You can fool your neighbors. You can fool your friends. You can fool your classmates. You can fool your kids. You can fool your spouse. You can fool mom and dad. You can even fool the church. But don't pat yourself on the back thinking, oh, I've just fooled everybody now. I got away with it. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. The Lord knows. He knows what you thought. He knows what you said. He knows what you did. And the sooner we change our minds about that, then I believe the sooner we will be able to repent. You see, it has to start in the mind. And that change of mind has to continue further with this second idea. And that is, whenever we change from thinking, oh, this sin, this thing that I'm about to be involved in, oh, it's so good. Being involved in this, this is going to just make me so happy. You need to change from thinking that to thinking about sin. You know what? This is going to ruin me. This is going to destroy me. You know, why is it? Why is it that people sin? Why do we do that? Why do human beings, why do we sin? Well, I'll just give you the short and sweet answer. It's because sin is fun. It's enjoyable. It is pleasurable. And I know that sometimes people gasp a little bit when preachers make those kinds of statements from the pulpit, but you know what? That's not Josh McKibben's words. That's what the Bible says. Look at Hebrews 11 with me. In Hebrews chapter 11, in this great chapter on faith, all these people who exhibited great faith, the writer here is talking about Moses, and he makes this point, it really is kind of a, kind of a side point, but it's an important point, about Moses in Hebrews 11. Look at verse 25. Hebrews 11 verse 25, he says that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
There's pleasure to sin. Nobody says, when they think about sin, nobody says, oh, this is going to be awful. This is going to be terrible. I just hate this. I, it's just going to hurt me so bad. It's not going to be any fun at all, but, but well, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. No, that's not how sin works. That's not how people look at sin. In sin, what we do is we cave in to self. We cave in to pride. We cave into our desires, into what we want to do. We put self on a throne and we say, forget everybody else. Forget about God. Forget about His laws. I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, that does feel good. There is. It's fleeting. It's momentary. But it does feel good. As we indulge ourselves in complete and utter self-centeredness, I'm in charge here. I'm doing to please me. Oh, this is so liberating. I hope it goes without saying this morning that that kind of thinking, that kind of attitude towards sin, that has to absolutely change. We need to be thinking about sin in the way that God thinks about sin. We need to look at sin in the broader view, in a more long-term, bigger picture sort of view. Because while there are, Hebrews 11 verse 25, fleeting, passing pleasures to sin, well, what happens once the pleasure wears off? What happens when we come down from that momentary high? What then? Look in Luke 16 with me. In Luke 16, here's a good example of a man who really didn't take a a long-range view of things. And as a result, he suffered the consequences. In Luke 16, I'm reading here beginning in verse 19. In Luke 16 and in verse 19, Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died. He was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. What we need to be asking ourselves right now is, do we believe that? Do we believe that the long-term effects of sin is that I will die, and I will go to a place of torment, and ultimately will go to a place called hell for all of eternity? Do we really believe that? Because... That is the end of sin. Talking big picture, looking long term, that is the end of sin, isn't it? Sin does not end happily ever after. Despite what Hollywood wants to tell us, there's a whole lot of ever after in Luke 16, but ain't none of it happy. In fact, what Luke 16 is doing is it is opening up our eyes to the fact that real joy, real contentment, real happiness, that comes when we are in a relationship with the Lord. That's where real joy comes from. Whenever we're doing what's right, that that provides a provides a, a centeredness to our life, a centeredness that that rich man he never had in his life. That life can be good now, and life will be good in eternity. The rich man he missed it on both counts, and so will we. So will we if we can keep convincing ourselves that there could possibly be anything good to be said about sin. Instead, we need to just lock into this, to the fact that sin 
is a killer. That it is a destroyer of all that is good, all that is right, all that is wonderful and is joyful. That it is a murderer of real happiness. Yes, I'll say again, sin might bring some momentary pleasure to our lives in the short term. But in the long term, it is ruinous. Look in Proverbs with me, in Proverbs 22. In Proverbs 22. As we read this verse, I want you to just ask yourself where you fit in the verse. <clears throat> like so many of the Proverbs, the wise man talks about the way of the fool. He talks about the way of the wise. And he contrasts the two. Look at this one in Proverbs 22 and in verse 3. Proverbs 22 and verse 3. The prudent or the wise, they see danger and hide themselves. But the simple, the foolish... They go on and suffer for it. Let me ask you, are you wise or are you simple? Do you see the dangers of sin and so then hide yourself from it? Or do you just kind of fumble and blunder your way through life? You blunder right into sin thinking that somehow in the end something good's going to come out of that. Which one of those two are you? If you're going to repent, you're going to have to change your mind. You're going to have to change your mind about sin. You're going to have to adopt God's viewpoint about sin, a long-range perspective on sin. It has to start in the mind. Thirdly and finally then this morning, I want to suggest that this change of mind, that includes as well changing from thinking, you know what, I can keep doing this maybe just a little bit longer. Keep doing this just a little while, milk it for a little bit more. I need to change from thinking that way. To the thinking that says, you know what? I gotta stop this. I gotta stop this immediately. This has to end right now. Let me show you a passage that has always puzzled me in Exodus chapter 8. In Exodus chapter 8, this is the account of the ten plagues being rained down upon Egypt. And in particular, when we come to Exodus chapter 8, this is the plague of the frogs. Something that right about now, everybody's looking in the direction of my wife because they know it's giving her chalkboard chills right now to think about frogs being everywhere. Well, let's think about this. Let's think about the response to all the frogs in the land of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 8, look in verse number 8. In Exodus 8 and verse 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. Moses says, When do you want me to do that, Pharaoh? When do you want me to get around to asking the Lord to take the frogs away? Verse 10. And he said, Tomorrow. Tomorrow? That's got to be a mistranslation, right? There's got, there's got to be something wrong going on. I mean, if you've got a whole country overrun with frogs, frogs everywhere, frogs in your bathtub, frogs in your kitchen cupboard, frogs in your sock drawer, frogs everywhere, then the right response to the question, when do you want the frogs taken away? The response is, right now. You don't even need to ask me, Moses. Today. Get on it immediately. Get Kermit and all his buddies and get them out of here. But amazingly... Pharaoh says, tomorrow. 
And the truth of the matter is, all too often, we are content to let sin stick around in our lives just a little while longer, just like Pharaoh was content to do with those frogs. We tell ourselves and we say things like, you know, I I know this is going to hurt, and I know it's not good, and I know that if I continue in it long enough, it might cause me to forfeit my soul. I know that it's wrong. I know that I'm not going to get away with it. But you know, one of these days, one of these days, I'm going to put an end to it. One of these days, I'm going to stop cold and I'm going to start doing what's right. Yet that very line of thinking shows just how much we need to change our thinking, doesn't it? Sin is to never be treated as something that we'll treasure for just a little while longer. Hold on to that for a few more days. Just a few more months. Just a little while, Lord. Sin is not something that I can squeeze out just a little bit more enjoyment of and then finally I'll give that up. No. No, the Bible teaches us that sin, that it is destroying us. That it is wrecking our lives. And in fact, if we die in our sins, it's going to wreck our eternity. How then, can I ask, how could we possibly ever want... Just a little bit more of that for just a little bit longer. How can we ever have that attitude towards sin? You know, nobody goes to the doctor. Nobody goes to the doctor and the doctor maybe does a checkup and the doctor says, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, but uh, you, you've got a cancerous tumor. And it looks like it could spread pretty quickly and it would cause you some real problems and in fact, you could die from that. Nobody goes to the doctor and hears that news and says, well, Thanks for pointing that out. Um, I'm going to go home now and I'm just going to enjoy my life. And, you know, a couple of years I might get back with you and you'll see, we'll see what we might do about that. No, that's not what we say about that, is it? We say, now. I want that removed now. I want that out of my body right now. I don't want to go another minute in my life with this evil, terrible disease infecting and destroying me from the inside out. You know what? That's exactly what we need to say about sin. That it has to go. There's no room for any kind of arguments or excuses, no questions asked. I'm not waiting to fix my, you know, raging temper problem tomorrow. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not going to stop being a, you know, a habitual liar, you know, next week, next month. No. I'm not gonna quit using all that filthy communication, coarse jexting, you know, sometime in the future at some undetermined point. No. I'm going to take care of that immediately, today, right now. When I understand that sin is killing me, that it is affecting myself, it is affecting the people that are around me, most importantly, it is hurting my God who loves me so much, who gave His Son to die for my sins. Do we ever think about that aspect of it? Do we ever think about what our continuing in sin, what that does to the Lord? Look at Hebrews 6 with me. In Hebrews 6, if ever there was a passage upon which we could build a foundation of repentance, I think this passage would be it. In Hebrews chapter 6, I'm reading here beginning in verse 4. In Hebrews 6 and in verse 4, the writer says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, 
since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. That's a sobering passage. That passage graphically describes people who are unwilling to leave their sin. They are unwilling to bury the old man. They are unwilling to change and to repent. And as a result, the Hebrew writer says, these are people who are crucifying afresh the Son of God. And you know, I don't want to think about my sin that way. I sure don't want to think about sin in those terms. I don't want to think about myself as being responsible for the death of Jesus. I don't want to think about my sin as hurting the Lord in that kind of way. No, what I want to do is I want to think of my sin as just its just a little innocent fun. It was just sowing of some wild oats. It's just doing what young people do. That's all it was. I want to think of my sin as being harmless. It's not going to really hurt anybody. God will surely forgive and overlook what I've done. It's no big deal. Hebrews 6 says otherwise. Hebrews 6 says that when we persist in sin, when we refuse to relent from sin, what we are doing is we are hurting God. It is as if I am the one holding the hammer. It is as if I am the one bringing that hammer down, striving those nails into the hands and into the feet of Jesus. It is as if I am the one who's shouting out those words, crucify Him, crucify Him. When I tell myself that I can hold on to my sin just a little while longer, I am crucifying Jesus again. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I don't want that. I don't want to carry that kind of burden around. I don't want to think about being guilty of crucifying Jesus again. That's why. That's why I need to change my mind. I need to think differently about sin. I need to be determined to repent, and I need to be determined to do that now. Immediately, not wait another second longer. Now, I say all these things this morning with the full realization that this is not easy. Repentance is not easy. That's why I titled it the way that I did. Repentance, the tough one. It is, in my estimation, the most difficult command that we have been given in all of God's Word. But you know what I hope you've seen this morning? I hope you've seen that it can be done. That God's commands are not impossible. That they are not burdensome. Instead, they are for our good always. It is good for us to repent. Despite what the devil tells us and despite what we tell ourselves. We need to repent. And in fact, Jesus says we must repent or we will perish. Repent or perish. Which one of those two will you choose this morning? You're going to have a few moments right now. So let that just kind of mull over. Let that stew and fester in your mind. We extend the invitation of Jesus Christ. And we're going to sing a song to encourage you to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we extend the invitation, we put an awful lot of emphasis on kind of the concluding thing. We put a lot of emphasis on baptism, that culminating moment where we become connected to the Lord and we become a part of the family of God. Our sins are washed away. Make no mistake, baptism is crucially 
important. I preach on baptism. You stick around long enough, I'll preach on baptism again. I don't want to de-emphasize the importance of baptism whatsoever. But I will just remind you that the order of things in Acts 2 and verse 38 is repent, be baptized. All the baptizing in the world really doesn't do any good if we've not made the decision to repent, to change our mind that leads to that change of life. So I'll ask you this morning, have you repented? Have you turned to the Lord? If you have not, you need to think about that. And I hope that you will be making some decisions in these next couple of moments to do just that. It is an urgent thing. It's not a tomorrow thing. It's not a next month thing. Repentance is a now kind of thing. And so if you need to make that turn to the Lord for the very first time and obeying the first principles... Or maybe you're needing, brother or sister, maybe you're needing to turn that corner again. Maybe you've drifted off. You've went back into sin. You need to get it turned around. Repent. Seek God's forgiveness. If we can pray with you and encourage you, making that repentance stick, then we would love that opportunity as well. Whoever you are, whatever stage of life, wherever you are in your spirituality, would you think about repentance? Would you think about seizing this moment to truly repent? Let's do that. Let's do that right now while we stand and while we sing.